All right. Here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Oh, I thought you were going to break into like, no, welcome I thought back. About caught that. It. I thought about that for a second. Which, like, you know, like, like there'd be like three people out there who would have any idea what you're talking about. Who know who Vinnie Barbarino is. <laughs> yes. An Arnold Horshack. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you are. So, yeah. Welcome to old guys talking <laughs> old guys about talking. old stuff. About education. About stuff. Yeah, this is great. Mm. Well, you know, I think it is uh, It is interesting that you and I, as two old white men, or older white men, I don't yeah. want to say we're old, <laughs> older white men, are picking the topic that we are choosing today. Um, uh, well, maybe not. I mean, I think... I yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit in our very not super well informed way, but uh, <laughs> but which I you're guess selling you could it, say man. You're selling everything. it. Yeah. Um, so uh, we just, you know, the ruling was just passed down, striking down affirmative action um, from the Supreme Court, and so we were just going to have a little conversation about what we think about that, um, what impact we think it might have or might not have. Um, and uh sort of what it says or what what it's premised on um so yeah i think uh i think we're just gonna sort of riff a little bit about about this uh and see what we what we have to say yeah and and you and i as as older white men have not been you know i mean i think we've both been in schools um for a long time and worked in schools for a long time but i don't think we're necessarily on um you know, got to experience affirmative action firsthand in terms of its impact on our lives. And so um, we may have been able to see its impact on other people's lives. Um, but the reality is that it's it, we're going to be entering into a new world, you know, in terms of what this is going to look like for admissions and for, you know, specifically colleges. Um, because, we, you know, you work at Penn State, which, you know, I don't know um, their admissions processes, but I would think that there was some, you know, opportunities to try to diversify the student population there. And yeah, um, there have been, and, and actually I was at Michigan, um, right around the time that this whole thing was happening. Uh, the case, um, Bollinger, Grutter versus Bollinger, which was, which is the land, the landmark case, um, that struck down affirmative action in in Michigan based on you know what was what was currently in place there. So that was happening in 2003, and I I uh, graduated from Michigan with my PhD in 2004. So that was contemporaneous with my being there, and it was there was lots of conversation, obviously, about the case and about affirmative action there, and um. Yeah, I mean, we certainly Penn State has had its hiccups around DEI uh, um, things with with the current president Neely Bendapudi. She's um, talked frequently about the commitment to DEIB and um, how the university is uh, supportive of those initiatives. Um, but she did cancel a big racial justice center that was here, which uh, led to a lot of you know, sort of backlash against, against her. And there've been some other things, um, sort of similarly, uh, in, in her tenure. So I think 
it's it, i think we're in an interesting time as you said I, with this striking down of affirmative action it's going to be interesting to see what happens i mean we saw in california what happened um and michigan what happened which is that the diversity of the incoming classes in those places at least initially and for quite a while dropped um and they became uh more white uh so um we'll we'll have to see whether that pattern it becomes a national pattern or, or if it's something else happens and they, they figure out a way to deal with it. Yeah. I, so I, um, the, the decision really created a lot of, um, stress for me. I mean, cause I, yeah. I, I mean, it's one of a, a whole bunch of decisions that came down that aren't in line with where, you know, I, politically I lean. Um, mm-hmm. and so, um, I think as, as schools, you know, as universities, we have to figure out ways to make our spaces um, places of opportunity for students, mm-hmm. places of because I, I I believe that education is still the single greatest you know force for good, or it can be the single greatest force mm-hmm. for good, um, and and for people to move from one economic bracket to another economic bracket to be able to like you know that force of movement and to be able to change people's lives because i've seen it i've seen it in my life you know i've seen it in how it's a like you know two generations ago my my families were you know steel workers and coal miners mm-hmm. yeah and 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 that's that's a, that's real like like two generations ago my grandfather was a you know, on one side of the family was a coal miner. The other one was a steel worker. And my dad went to college. Mm-hmm. My dad was able to go to college and was able to go on, on the GI bill and was able to, you know, really change the course of, you know, his life and my life. And I'm, I am a, a person who works in an academic setting because my, you know, my dad made that move. And, um, so that opportunity should be provided to others as well. Yeah. And I don't know how we do that if we don't like, I mean, because I think there's this idea of, you know, we, we have this thing in America we about meritocracy, right? We want to be yeah. people to be able to, <clears throat> but the, the, I, the concern for me is like, what counts as, as merit? Like what, cause is it just, is it just that you, you know, perform best on a, an SAT, right? Cause that's it. That's a, you know a measure of merit, right? It's like, oh, hey, you did really well at the SATs, but then you peel away and you go, okay, well, what does the SAT really measure? You know, is it, is it a, is it a fair assessment? Cause like if somebody's taking it once, because I can afford to take it once mm-hmm. versus somebody else is taking it 20 or 30 times with professionals who, professional tutors, you know, I don't know if that that's, it's, it's a merit thing at this point, yeah. you know? And and those are things that like for me working so closely in in the schools um, for as long as we, you and I have you know we see people who in different circumstances would be for whatever that circumstance is for them would be ha- would have a very different you know ending or a different chapter or whatever in their, their lives if one element or a couple elements would have been changed or more opportunities would have been provided and and I know education can do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think the, 
point that you're making is that that I think the key here is we want to have a meritocracy, but a meritocracy is complicated to establish in a in a society that is not meritocratically organized <laughs> to begin with. So if you've got a bunch of people who have a huge amount of privilege and access, and then you say, okay, well, now we're going to make it a meritocracy. Well, the people with privilege and access are going to have a huge advantage because they have both privilege and access. So when you say meritocracy, what do you actually mean? Like, do, right. do you really want a meritocracy? Because if we wanted a meritocracy, then then the distribution just by the nature of, of how uh, biology works um, is that we would be there would be a representation in most things that represents the population um and that's not what we have we have a significant overrepresentation of one group of people in particular in our society and and to think that that is meritocratic it doesn't make any sense from just a, a fundamental logic point of view so the question is then well if we don't have a meritocracy how do we deal with it right. and how do we decide to 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 try and rectify that to to reconcile that with our notions of what uh, meritocracy is and 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 clearly you know the court has decided that affirmative action you know having that be a factor taking race into consideration and de- deciding explicitly, yeah. explicitly isn't the way to do it yeah. you know and I, you and I are not smart enough people to figure out the better ways to do it but clearly there are there has to be some better ways to do this in order to be able to provide access be, and provide access and opportunity for people because i mean you like uh, so you you were talking about um you know uh representation so mm-hmm. let, this was in a newspaper article um that i just read in the new york times just recently it said um the skew is so extreme at some colleges that more undergraduates come from the top 1% of the income distribution than from the entire bottom 60%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, like if we're talking, if we're just talking like statistically, right? Yeah. Statistically, the, that pool of 1% is small. Yeah. The pool for the 60% is very large. Yes. And so from an ability and statistical standpoint, you, we cannot say that like there aren't people down, you know, that's down the people in the lower, you know, economic, they don't have the ability to be successful. Yeah. They just didn't have the opportunity. Right. I mean, it runs fundamentally against our notion of who we are as a country, right? Which is right. that everybody has an opportunity to be successful. And if you say, well, the result is that the top 1% is, so far overrepresented that it clearly is not the case that every, I mean, it's not that everyone can't succeed because there are people in that 60% that are going to succeed because a, there's a lot of them, right? Right. I mean, more than half, which means we're talking about close to 200 million people. So out of that group, you're going to get some successful folks, right? I mean, just because you have so many, uh, the pool is so large, but, but, um, but, but, but the challenge with that is, yeah. Bananas. But the challenge with that is that what we do is we have the, that, that huge population and that we have those couple people that, that, not couple, we have people who make it out of there, right? Small percentage. And, small percentage. And it's the, you know, you pull themselves up by the bootstraps, right? Yeah. And it's like, which is, you know, fundamentally, uh, uh, you know, an America, 
you know, belief, right? It's an American, yeah. it's, it's built into our, our DNA as, as a, as a country. But, the, but the reality is that it's, that is a, a hard thing to do. Yeah. Right. And, and what we should be looking at is how do we create institutions where that sort of pathway is easier for folks, yeah. you know, and it's not to like say, okay, we're going to do it. And, and like, I don't know, that replacement theory kind of thing. We're going to take these people and replace them with these right. people. No, 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 no. Like, it's not like, I don't really think education is a finite commodity, right? Is it? Yeah, I mean, that's, well, it's not, but it's trickier than that, right? Because education glosses a lot of things, right? So what is a finite commodity is uh, undergraduate slots at Harvard University or Stanford right. University or whatever. They You can't just say to Harvard um, or any university, you need to accept everyone that's academically qualified um, to your university, right? Because you can't scale that. You can't have a million people go to Harvard University. So, so on some level, there is uh, a challenge that we have to deal with that, um, that some of this has to do with the reputation of the institutions that people attend for their education. And as a result, the peer group that they are connected with and exposed to and have experiences with, right? So, so this is, it's, Yes, education. If it, if if we think of education as some um, generic thing, it, it is not um, is not restricted by number. But the institution, the number of people that apply to Penn State University or Millersville, there there are people who apply to these institutions, not just Harvard, but all institutions that are not accepted into those institutions, and um, that that there are lots of complicated reasons for that. Race is a factor, of course, sure. but there's tons of reasons. Um, but we can't we can't just solve that by saying everybody gets to get into wherever they apply. So there, so we have we're in this right liminal space where we we both have we have to make choices about who we admit to our institution because our the resources to educate those people are limited, not unlimited. And we also want to increase the equity and and diversity of our our society and our and our universities and and so how do we do that in a way that is fair or equitable or whatever word you want to use to to to, to describe this process? Well, I mean, I I think for me, where I land on, on, on this stuff is, okay, what are the core beliefs? I think education is a power for good, right? And it can make change, like great changes in people's and families' lives. I think the other thing is that more diverse groups are better places for learning. Sure. Like, and, and we can divide the, like, you can define diversity however you want. Cause it's like, we, I mean, I think it's, you know, economic diversity, it's racial diversity, it is gender diversity, it mm -hmm. is like all of it. Like, the, the more diverse spaces that we can have, the better we can learn from one another, the better we can come to an, like, a better understanding of how, whatever it is we're talking about, right? Yeah. Um, whatever that, that what we're trying to learn about or, you know, cause I, I think the, the more the room is with white men who look like me, like, like what does, like they're going to have the same perspectives that I have or, or similar perspectives. Right. Yeah. And bringing in somebody who is so, you know, has a different background, different, you know, 
experiences, different ways of looking at the world, you know, is is going to make that space richer, the conversations mm-hmm. richer. As long as, you know, you could be skilled in making sure it's a, a space where people can be curious, right? Yeah. Um, and and in whatever sort of safety, you know, safe space we and we talked about that in an episode, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think my my hunch is that there will be an attempt to move towards more socioeconomic indicators because at least in part um one of the things that being in, in a marginalized identity group does for you is it reduces your opportunity for socioeconomic advancement to your earlier mm-hmm. point right so um people with uh p- black black people people of color are overrepresented in in high poverty uh, groups. They people with disabilities, uh, physical or I'm, mental um, disabilities, are overrepresented in low so, lower socioeconomic groups. So it, it can be used as a proxy. It's complicated because um, you know again because those those populations are underrepresented. They're also an underrepresented in those socioeconomic groups. So there's. While there are lots of people of color who are poor, there are lots and lots of white people who are poor too. Yeah. Now, does that mean? I, I again, I, as you said, I, I don't know the smart way to deal with that as an admissions group. Um, and I think they're going to have a challenge because you know a lot of what I've heard is, well, we're going to try and work with the essay and have essays that are about diversity or about your experiences or whatever, and use those as a as an entree. But I mean, the reality of that is. We admit, um, you know, somewhere around ten to twelve thousand students to Penn State every year out of an application pool that's got to be at least five times that, maybe sure. more. Um, so how do you how do you ask admissions folks to look at fifty thousand applications um, when their essays? I mean that that's um, not tenable. It, it, it's difficult to do for the Shriers Honors College, which is a small unit within Penn State where they have essays uh, for admission. Um, I can't even imagine the amount of work that it would require to do that for for 50,000 students. So I, I think they're really going to have to figure out um, some interesting ways to think about this. Um, yeah. I yeah, like I said, there there are smarter people than you and I who are going to have to you know Hopefully. figure this out. I hope I hope yeah. that's who, you know because I I worry that you know some institutions going to say oh well let's let's throw AI on this right? Yeah. right and we're gonna you know go through and look at uh you know different essays and search for different indicators which is just going to create up a, a whole new world of problems yeah well right? then you'll just have kids using AI to write. You know, right. o- optimize my uh, essay for admission to Harvard University, please, and you know whatever it is. So yeah. Well, that's the, that's the other interesting thing about this is that you know in the in the wake of the decision, there's been so many articles that have been and written on this, and so many different you know things appeared online. And um, one of the articles was from a a, a, a counselor who works with applicants. Right. Mm-hmm. Who yeah. and usually, you know, who can, who are the people who can pay for, you know, a, a counselor like that, somebody who has the, you know, the, the financial means to do that, but working with them on how to craft an essay, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, that's the 
I mean, that's the challenge. It's, it's going to get gamed. It's going to get gamed. And I, I worry about that because it's going to create even more um, inequity into a yeah. system that is already inequitable. Um, yeah. yeah and- well, I mean, I think this is the problem is no matter what system you set up, people who have privilege and access will be able to take better advantage of it. I mean, that's right. the definition of privilege and access. So if you, no matter what system you set up, it's going to have that. I mean, one of the interesting things, and I didn't get to hear this um, person speak, but the, a, a person, um, and I'm, I'll see if I can find them for show notes, um, who was talking about random admissions. So you just have people apply and then you randomly right. select. And what is, what is the impact of random admissions on, um, on the outcomes for people? Um, and surprisingly, uh, it's not as bad, bad as you would think. Um, so I think that's interesting. Cause there's a, a, there was a podcast, maybe it was 99% invisible, which they had done this someplace in Central America. There was a, uh, they were looking at elections, elections, oh. and specifically um, in like it was a school system, and they were looking at randomly selecting school leaders. So people yeah. would put put their put their names in as interested parties, or maybe not even put their names in as interested parties, but then they would just say, "Okay, here are going to be our leaders." And they would pick people at random. Yeah, and they and they found that the people were picked at random were in some ways better leaders and it's like yeah which you know versus like versus like actually having a democratic election yeah and which is wild but then you think about like okay here's a here's a qualified applicant pool we're just going to pick you know twelve thousand, you know randomly selected people yeah well i mean on some well this goes back to the greeks right that they did this Greeks or Romans. I don't remember. Maybe it was the Romans, but that, you know, you now they selected out of the pool of people who counted as people back then. So then they were quite literal about who counted as people and who didn't. But, um, but this idea of random, um, you know, service in leadership, I mean, there's an argument to be made. Certainly. I mean, when you think about, well, I talked about the diplomat last week, uh, of, the the show that I watched. And one of the premises that's sort of embedded in that is that the people who run for office are typically good at running and bad at leading, right? Because mm. the skill sets are very different from each other. Like what you need to get elected, especially in our the way our system works now, at, into a democratic leadership position, um, little little d democratic like to be elected a senator or a or a congressman um that skill set is very different than the skill set needed to operationalize government activity in a way that's productive and meaningful um yep. so i think that's a, a a really interesting challenge um to this whole notion right is like and i feel maybe we've drifted a little here from the original idea no. but but um but I do think, um, you know, that that that's an extra layer of complexity to this is um, how do you decide who is going to be successful at something? And that's really what it, college admissions is, is they're trying to 
both determine who will be successful at the university because they want people universities do want people to graduate yeah, they, right yeah, they want pe- they, they want people to be successful they don't yeah. like we don't want to admit people to millersville or penn state and have them not be able to right. you know navigate that's, yeah that's successful. that's terrible so if the goal is to have them graduate from university and i think fundamentally most universities would probably say, in addition to that, we'd love it if our graduates were really successful afterwards. If for no other reason, then that makes it likely that they'll give to the university when they're out in the world. But also just because that's the function of a university, at least in part, is to prepare people to go out in the world and be successful. And so um, so success is built into the system in that regard. But um, But the question is, like, how do you select for success? Um, and our current system is certainly predisposed to thinking that the way you select for success is you look for people who come from success, uh, the, in the current system and accept them in. And I think now, now you're seeing the, the challenge that's going to go up through, I think, to the Supreme Court ultimately about legacies and donors and whether those folks should have, uh, their children should have a better chance to be admitted to these highly selective universities. And, you know, it seems like, well, no, but of course there are lots of reasons where, where that may, because privilege and access are involved with that decision that we may see a, a very different notion of, of what selective admission based on your identity means when, when the people being selected for are uh, rich and, and have access to power. Yeah. I, cannot even predict. I have given up trying to predict how, you know, different courts are going to decide these things, you know? Well, and again, no matter what that decision is, um, the, the people who have power and access are going to figure out what the new, how the new regime works immediately and how to circumvent it using power and access as a way to circumvent it, because this is what people do. I mean, it, it's on some level human nature. I mean, I hate to say that, but it's really, um, and it feels really cynical, but I think it, it is also true. So I think trying to figure out a system that um, entirely voids people's uh, access and privilege is going to be a very complicated, if not impossible problem. I mean, really what you're doing is trying to whittle down some of that to try and make things more equitable. Um, but it's it can't it's unlikely to happen in one big fell swoop where we just say okay well now we have this really clear admissions process that allows people in based just on their merit what again whatever they define merit as right. and and no privilege access or sway from outside that meritocratic system will be will be considered it's just well, I think we'll we'll have to, you know, wade through this. You know, we'll definitely see. It'll be an interesting fall, interesting couple of years as we go um yeah. in this post, you know, affirmative action world. Um but I think that our I, I know it in Millersville, our our president, um, he issued a uh a statement that said, you know, our our university is still committed to diversity, equity, inclusion, and that um, you know, it's it's built into our uh, we have these things called epic values, which are mes- mission statements. Um, and the, one of the values is, uh, you know, inclusion. And another one's, uh, you know, uh, you know, I think it's equality, I think is another one in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you know, that 
these are things that we strive for at our institution. And so what that's going to look like um, is I, I think it's going to be, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think we are going to have to wait and see, but, uh, but I think in the meantime, we, we as um, leaders or participants in these systems really do have to think about what are we going to do in the near term, right. To, to do our best to, to, um, yeah, to combat this, to make our communities safe and diverse and inclusive. Um, and yeah, it's uh boy, howdy. It's well, a- well, one of the things that I, I, I listened to Adam Grant's podcast, like the rethink rethinking podcast a good bit. And he had, uh, the author to hidden figures on recently. Um, and I'm, blanking on her name uh margot shetterly margot lee shetterly is the mm. author of hidden figures and um i didn't know much about her as an author um she's a she's a black woman who uh whose father um worked in nasa mm. and was working with nasa alongside of all of um the people who are the the actual you know um figures in hidden figures mm. um and so Growing up, she's like, I knew these women. They were like women yeah. at my church. They were like, um, you know, they were older than my father. Um, so they were all people that my father looked up to and had worked with. Um, and, um, you know, I, I knew them. And and it was actually her husband who said, you know, someone should write a book on these women because they're amazing. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, maybe I should be the person who writes that book. And she wrote the book. Um, so that what was interesting about it was, you know, her take on on their lives and their ability to have um, access to science and access to, you know, math and and be successful and the challenges that they faced in in you know this uh, at the time was a pretty segregated environment. Um, but she talked about the 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 role of mentorship, right? The role of mentorship, mm, sure. um, the role of allyship. You know, having people sure. who would because she was like, you know, one of the things that she was doing when she was researching her book was finding out who who sat next to who and who worked next to who and mm. who like all the people who were like helping out others, social network right? diagrams, all the all the networking spaces, because the one and if you've seen the movie, I haven't read the book, but I've seen the movie and that the 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 one woman um really works to get um her division um, up to date on programming because he wants mm-hmm. to be able to make sure that all the people who work under her are prepared for the next thing. Cause she, you know, and then, um, you know, that mentorship is really critical. It's like critical for us to be able to, you know, be aware that, you know, who, whatever students we work with um, and hopefully it's, you know, we're using education or we're providing opportunity for students, um, all students. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, we just have to be ready to provide that mentorship and that allyship to whoever we work with and trying to make it. And hopefully we, you know, are creating these democratic diverse spaces where merit is um, not just defined by, hey, how did they do on an SAT, you know, because we know that that is mm-hmm. a very limited perspective of success. Yeah. And ability and merit. Well, and GPA. I mean, all the right. markers all we have it. are are built on on those notions that haven't. I mean, the tricky thing about the point you're making, though, is you can't mentor 
or support people that aren't there. There. Right. Uh, and so that's exactly right. <laughs> so I mean, once folks get to your institution, um, then that's that's part two of the problem, right? I mean, we talk about recruiting and retention a lot, uh, especially like when we think about higher education faculty, um, you know, at Penn State, for example, we've the College of Education has done a remarkably good job of hiring people of color over the last few years. Um, and now the question is, how do we figure out creating an environment that retains those folks so they don't just leave? Right. Um, so I agree there's two steps to the process, at least two steps. But the one that took a hit is the getting access. the people to your institution. Right. So access did take a hit here and figuring out how to deal with that impact on on these communities i think is is important and and you know i have a colleague who i work with here at penn state who's a um a formerly incarcerated person who talks about one of the things that he notices is that even the folks of color that are entering these systems tend to come back to your original point about the socioeconomic from from a the the highest echelon socioeconomically. So, so we're not getting um, diversity in that sense either, right? There is, there is a lack of socioeconomic diversity amongst the people that are being admitted. Um, and so we have to work. I, I do think there, there's something to be said for considering the socioeconomics of this because both within the population of white students that are admitted to our predominantly white institution and the students of color, um, the socioeconomic disparities are are massive. So, um, yeah. so how to think about th all these pieces? They're just, I mean, there just are a lot of of. Well, it's education. It's complex and it's difficult and it's cultural and uh, it's not going to be solved easily with simple metrics like SATs or GPAs because those things carry with them right. all sorts of cultural baggage and complexity that make them easily gamed by people who have privilege and access. Yeah, it it they are more representative of the systemic issues that face. I mean, if you really peel it away, yeah, all of it is is that while they're indicators of of merit, right? Mm -hmm. By someone's perspective, um they're easily gamed and they uh un, they really hide a lot of um complexity. Yeah. And that's saying it nicely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they do, right? I mean, if you can move house so that your student, your children can go to a better, quote unquote, better resource, well, not quote unquote, better resource school, and there's no quotes around that, um, because the tax base in that community is better and therefore the schools are better resourced, and then, then that's privilege. I mean, that's... Yeah. And that changes your child's ability to have access to further education. So that's just one example. But there's so many ways that all of this is is not as simple as GPA and SAT score or any other numerical metric of merit. It, it, you know, that's people have this illusion. And I think we talk about this on the show a lot, especially when we talk about assessment, that numbers are somehow less culturally bound than other forms of assessment. Like yeah. when you use words to describe somebody that that is less accurate somehow than putting a number on them. And, and I think that that is a pernicious notion that um, is foundational to a lot of this um, 
you know, a lot well, of goes back about meritocracy. Yeah. Yeah, it goes back to like qualitative research versus quantitative research. Like people will have this idea, this perspective that quantitative research is 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 a little bit, you know, it's 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 I don't know what's what's the word I want to use here. It it is interpretive. It, well, qualitative work is really yeah. inter interpretive, and that you know n we put numerics on it. It's like oh, this is real. This is like yeah, this, it's not it, interpretive, right? And uh and. All of those numbers are all just, you know, they're just not, they're, they're as messy and cloudy and, and as any interpreted and culturally know, bound because you defined your terms, right? Lies, damn lies, and statistics. Like it is, yeah. it is, uh, yeah. 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 So when we use numbers to try and create meritocracy, all we do is reallocate the resources that people have, uh, with their privilege to increase their students' scores on whatever we're measuring. So yeah. if, if they need to have extracurriculars, then okay, we'll we'll make sure that they play, you know, travel soccer so that they can be captain of their travel soccer team. And, you know, or they can be in the theater and, you know, not have a job after school or what, you know, there's all there's so many ways that these things infiltrate these systems that are designed to be meritocratous. Um but just simply aren't no solutions today scott we have no solutions just lots of problems big thumb down to this yeah, show mm -hmm. yeah oh yeah this is yeah, uplifting <laughs> we sh yeah we should we should probably get to joys because the whole rest of this episode just sucked the joy out of everything yeah <laughs> that's right joy you got a joy i got a joy but you should go first i went first last time so you go first uh well so i I think I mentioned this in last week's um, episode, but I'm reading the the three body problem, and this is a book that you recommended uh, ages ago, maybe in mm -hmm. even like the first or second season. Um, so it was on you know my list of books to read, and so um, and it's it's very sciencey, it's very physicsy, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. those are both great parts. I'm you know I, what growing up I was really a science fiction reader like that was my primary you know whether it was uh Kurt Vonnegut or you know H.G. Wells or whatever I was like w like hardcore into that and then you know probably in college I read a, read a lot of Asimov and so you know I was really that science fiction reader and then I would say I don't know I uh I strayed a good bit over the last you know 20 years or so um but you know, I've read. I'm trying to diversify the types of things I read this year, and um, also you know the types of authors I read. And so um, this kind of checks both those boxes. In that you know, I am reading a science fiction book um, that's kind of a little out out of the ordinary of what some of the things I've been reading, and also a uh, an author who is of um, Chinese descent, and so mm -hmm. very different perspective. Um, one of the interesting things is that I. I didn't jump ahead to the ending of the book, but I jumped ahead to like the author description at the end because I wanted to know a little bit more about the author. And um, he writes that he's not really that interested in um, in reflecting politics or reflecting. He's just writing stories he thinks are interesting. Mm. And so his stories aren't really, you know, metaphors or really like political actions or anything like that. Maybe that's just on the environment he's working in. But it's also really interesting to to because I think a lot of authors are trying to write something. I don't know. Some authors, I can't say a lot. There mm -hmm. are authors who write things 
to try to say, you know, some sort of message or some sort of metaphor sure. of the world. And while I think this book absolutely has some, you know, things that connect to our world, mm-hmm. that was never his intent. And yeah. so um, I don't want to get too much into the, the storyline because it's pretty complex, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> But I, but I'm really enjoying it, and mm-hmm. I, and and it's something that's been bringing me joy, and it's something that's get, get has me really thinking about the nature of reality, the nature of you know science, mm-hmm. and the you know the the play of science in society. Yeah, you know. Yeah, well, I think, and often I think speculative fiction or science fiction or whatever you want to call it uh, gets that um, uh, rap as they are they're much more message oriented sort of literature or, or, um, you know, like you think of a lot of famous science fiction, it's almost always either saying great things about the future or saying sort of terrible, scary things about the future, but always, um, speculating on some sort of value and emphasizing some piece of our current, um, culture or literature or culture or, or um, politics, and then just sort of amplifying that into the future and seeing what happens when you follow that path. So, um, yeah, I think there there's definitely that. And but but all that said, I really enjoyed that book too. And yeah, if you've got did you read that? Like, I guess it's a part of a a, a trilogy. Did you read yeah, the other ones? I've only I've only read the first one, so I did not read the other ones after. So I I have no comment on that. All right. But yeah, like the other thing I read this year was uh, like I read the the uh the NK Jemison books, yeah. you know, and I'm working on a I have another one in the queue. Um I'm trying to read the the cities we became, I think, or the yeah. have you read so that's on my list. Um, yeah, I think I've read pretty much everything that she's written, except for the early she had a lot of like um early short story stuff. And I haven't read that, but I think all the novels that the, there are multiple three ones a two book. But yeah, right. I mean, she's fantastic. Don't, yeah. Um, but I'm not going to recommend a speculative fiction book by anybody. I am going to actually recommend a piece of software. Um, so I have had a long journey in trying to get a piece of software um, because the way our my university works is um, if it's not available through the App Store, I have a Mac. If it's not available through the App Store, and it's not already pre-approved, then you have to go through a sort of, um, you know, bureaucratic mess to get a piece of software approved because they want to look at the legalese of all this. But I recently, or about a month ago, got a piece of software called Obsidian approved for me to use. Um, and it's I've been playing with it. It's really, um, so far, I'm really pleased with it. And I, I'm going to continue to play with it. So I may report again on it. But um, but it's a, a couple core things that I look for in, in note-taking software. One is the ability to link or hyperlink between notes. And Obsidian was built for that and even has a visualizer that lets you see the relationship between all your notes, which is very cool. The other thing is it's built entirely on Markdown, which for those of you who are not familiar with sort of nerdy technology stuff. Um, essentially, Markdown is, a, is a, a simple text or a plain text way of writing documents that have formatting um, in ways that can be read across platforms and includes being able to format for things like HTML and the web. Um, so it's built on Markdown, which means all the files are text files, which means if Obsidian dies tomorrow, I'll have all my stuff with all of the, all of it formatted in Markdown, which means I'll have all the links and all the stuff. And 
So I'm I'm continuing to play with it, but it, the other thing it has is a really robust user community um, that builds plugins for it. So some of the things now I'm starting to play with are it's got plugins for Zotero, which is my bibliographic software. So you can start making links to that, um, and and I'm I'm interested in how I'm going to incorporate this into my workflow, and um, I use it. I'm not using it for sort of notes, like taking notes in meetings or things like that. I'm using this for more conceptual notes. So these are the places I keep track of the ideas that I'm having about teaching, about scholarship, about things that I'm interested in, um, because that's the core of what I think it's really good for. Um, but yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm. It looks really cool. I'm, yeah. I was I Googling it as you were talking. I yeah, wasn't familiar with uh, it. And it's cross-platform. You can sync it across multiple devices. So um it's it's a it's a fun piece of software. So um, yeah, I don't know where I'll be on that in the future, but for now, I am a big fan. That's awesome, Obsidian. Obsidian. We'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I don't know if we 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 covered any like new ground with the, the affirmative action case, but you know I think it really for for two people who work in schools and you know and have worked in schools for decades, I think we you know are probably well positioned to see, you know, some of the challenges that are likely to be faced. Yeah. You know? Well, I think, you know, this time next year, you and I may be able to have a much more informed conversation about the impact of this decision, but, um, or maybe two years from now, I mean, the, yeah. way, the way admission cycles work, but yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly going to have an impact. It did in California. It did in Michigan. I'm sure it will happen nationally. It's just a question of what that looks like. So, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I guess we'll catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now.